Welcome to the Left Wingers podcast. I'm Ross. I'm Kathleen. And I'm Brandon. Welcome to another episode of Wings With Us, a series for getting to know us a little bit better as we discuss the news and all things politics. The Left Wingers community might have noticed that we've been away for a couple of weeks, but we're very much back now and very excited for conference and what the rest of this year brings. Uh, no doubt it'll be a busy one. I'm really looking forward yeah, to it. Yeah, we were away for a while, weren't we? Um, but I feel like the first couple of weeks it was very quiet. And then just before we came back, there was all these different news stories that came out. So we'll, we'll touch on a few of those. Brandon, do you want to kick us off? What have you been paying attention to recently? Particularly social care. It's it's a massive policy issue. Um, it's quite difficult to tackle because it's got so many different parts to the issue. You know, it's, a lot of people, when they think about social care, it, they go straight to kind of care homes and looking after the elderly. But actually, a large part of the funding that goes into social care goes to adults with disabilities. I think that's one of the things that the government's plans, <laughs> among all the other things which which are wrong with them, I think that's the one thing that they haven't kind of looked at enough. How do we deal with the social care crisis for people with disabilities and those that want to just be helped to live a little bit more independently through the social care system? But yeah, it's such a, it's such a big policy issue and I don't claim to be an expert in it, it at all, but there's no doubt that it needs it needs reform. Yeah, I mean, no doubt about that. I think social care is a political football that's been kicked around for decades, I think. I think this is something that, you know, the Blair the Blair years didn't exactly sort out. And then the Cameron years, I think it was always on Cameron's agenda to sort out social care. Uh, but because of the Europe issue, I don't think he got his full second term to completely root and branch, uh, have reforms. And, you know, now we're in 2021 after an international pandemic and I don't know if this is a solution. I don't think this is going to work, to be quite honest. I don't think the reforms are any good. And I think what we also might have is a starting crisis in social care. So think about it. You've got a lot of people working who have worked through the pandemic, who are in those care homes, who are probably not earning too much and are working a lot of hours and are probably now thinking after this pandemic, well, I could get the same wage doing another job for half the hours. And also, to be honest, I don't think social care is one of those esteem professions that people look on it as like they would do with teaching or maybe medicine and I I think there's a huge PR branding image reform that needs to happen in order for social care to be taken seriously because it's a really difficult job it's it's one of the most difficult jobs I can't think of any job that I'd want to do less because the kind of expectations that they have on them for the wage that they're paid is huge. It's crazy. And there's a complete lack of mental health support as well. Yeah, it's one of those um, job roles we've seen over the last year, how much we appreciate those that do it. Um, but like other roles, they've not been given proper recognition. And, and then what you have is a situation where experienced members of staff are just leaving the profession and, and no one's replacing them. Or, or you've got a young and experienced staff who you know can't fill those boots. And it's, it's leading to a staffing crisis. And it's also we've got an aging population. So there's, there's more people having to use a system, which has less and less capacity. I think it's just, it's, I don't really know where the government was going when they decided that they were going to fund social care reform through national insurance. It was a very interesting strategy on their part, but not to be 
unexpected because they prefer to take taxation out of those that are working hard rather than those who have the broadest shoulders and who can afford to pay a little bit more tax. And actually, it's social care that has sunk previous Conservative government, in my opinion. The branding of the dementia tax in 2017 definitely had its effects on May's attempt to get a majority in that snap election. Uh, And I think that's a huge worry for Conservative governments going into the future. Like, how do they respond to this particular policy area? Because it's one that uh, their core voter base is very reactive with. I think you have a massive problem when a Conservative Chancellor says to the public, there will not be any tax rises. And then there are significant tax rises. And also a lot of that money that it will be collected by national insurance isn't actually going towards social care. There is some of it that's going towards the NHS backlog as well. And I think also we're hearing like some pretty, pretty interesting stuff this week about a fire break lockdown in October during the half term, which makes me like exceptionally cautious for what might be a Christmas that we are not expecting. Um, so I'll be watching. I mean, I'll be watching the news with with a lot of interest to see how this how this issue plays out. But I, I know for a fact that there are lots of young conservatives who are pretty upset that now more and more of their money is going towards the taxman without necessarily uh, getting any immediate benefit from it. Just while we're talking about firebreak lockdowns, today it's been announced beside Javid that England's going to be scrapping vaccine passports. What do the two of you make of that? I think it's it's a good sign to be honest because I never thought that the way that we should go about getting people vaccinated was through the push approach I do feel like we have to we can incentivize getting a vaccine but you can't force people into getting it I think that it would erode trust in the vaccine if they had to resort to an approach of pushing people into to getting it to be honest I actually disagree with that I think that you already need people already have vaccine passports they just don't realize it the minute that you want to go abroad, the minute that you want to do a certain type of job, they will ask you whether you've had, you know, when you're a child, if you had your polio vaccine, they'll ask you, like, if you're going away, if you need, like, a, a malaria shot or, or certain types of medication. So they already exist. You're just bringing them into the public. Mm-hmm. And I also think that, you know, this is this is the life that we're going to be living now, which is, you know, those who are vaccinated will have certain privileges and that those who are not vaccinated one might have and it's I understand it's very difficult for those who are immunocompromised but that is a small minority and I have very little time for the anti-vaxxers and to be quite honest like if you don't want to get your vaccine that's fine but don't go to a club don't go out don't have fun and you can you know sit on Twitter or sit on Facebook and do whatever you want to do because that's absolutely fine but don't compromise my freedom and my my ability to go and work and to have a life because you're too lazy to go and get a vaccine but the vaccine take up has been on the whole really good, especially with young people. It was one of the be- like one of the best in Europe. We're now vaccinating even younger people. They announced that this morning. And then, I mean, it's one thing to say we're not having vaccine passports. But it's another thing to say, oh, but there might be a fire break lockdown mm-hmm. in in October, and the government will set out next week. I'm told, uh, or this week, if if this podcast goes out on Wednesday, that they're going to be announcing plans for winter where they might bring back social distancing. They might bring back masks. I think it's good to know, you know, what else will it be bringing back? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I can understand the civil liberties argument, but the way I look at it is we, we know that having the vaccine, whilst it might not stop transmission, does reduce it by at least 30%. And so if that's the difference between, you know, another lockdown 
I think the you know the, the impact that would have on civil liberties is, is quite minor compared to another lockdown where we're all stuck in our houses again. It's not ideal, but the last 18 months hasn't been ideal. It needs proper studies to see whether it would work. I think I don't think the Scottish and UK governments would have announced these, you know, in the first place had they not. I just I worry that if we're not willing to make that trade off, we're going to be back in the same situation we've been in for the last eighteen months, where we're all stuck in our houses again. Yeah, just to just clarify what the government have kind of been hinting, because they haven't made any big announcements about it as of when we're recording on the Sunday. They've said that it's not necessarily going to be we're all locked indoors again, like the first, second and third lockdown. But it'd be more kind of reintroducing restrictions on wearing masks and social distancing again, which is still pretty significant because we've all got, well, quite a lot of us have got used to kind of not having those restrictions. But I think the worry for me is that I don't really know at what point the country will be in a position to not have to worry about coronavirus Because I feel like it's one of those things that, you know, we can encourage people to get the vaccine as much as possible. And we've got quite a high take up, to be fair, which is which is a good news. It's never going to stop being talked about because it's a very dangerous virus and we can't eradicate it like some of the other viruses that we have historically, at least no time soon. And I just wonder kind of what the point is where we say, do we restrict people anymore? Do we not? That's a choice for the government to make. Well, I back I back Joe Biden's new reform, which is if you're an employer that has over 100 employees, you, you need to have mandatory vaccinations or they can't work in the job. And I think unless you have a note from your doctor, which explains why you can't have the vaccine, which I think is perfectly acceptable. If you can't med- medically get it, then I think that's completely fine. Other than that, no excuse, I don't think. And I think big, I would encourage the big employers to look at whether that's something that they want their employees to do. And also, you know, a lot of those big employers at the minute are offering flu shots every year anyway. So that you know there's you go in and you get your flu shot or you get you you get it uh discounted because you work for you work for a Fortune 500 company or a FTSE 500 company. You know, what's the difference? It's not I don't think it's really that much to ask of somebody just to wait in queue for half an hour and get a little vaccine and feel a bit bad for about 3 or 4 hours and then crack on with your life. Like I don't I don't really think we're asking that much out of people. I mean, uh... I think that's what the Americans are doing is, is probably a bit harsh. I don't think you could stop people working, but certainly in venues where you are going to be really close to people, such as clubs and um, other places where we know the virus spreads um, quicker, then it's certainly something to look at. I, I don't think we should be stopping people going to their work if they're not having the vaccine. I think there's a line and you know we should have them in place as, as short as possible, but as long as necessary. So we also discussed that ABBA have released a new song. I know we've, we've been discussing it in the group chat for a few weeks now. Um, we're looking at maybe doing a wee rendition at conference. I'm not too sure on the new songs. I think they're a bit of a letdown, to be honest, after, what, 40 years oh. of, of no songs. It's just when you compare them with the old ones and it's really booze and, you know, they're just not the same. You can tell they've, they've aged and they're a bit less energy and we like high energy, don't we? Shots fired. <laughs> How dare they be in their late seventies? How very dare you say that about Abba? No, I'm I mean, just kidding. I think you, I, I think it's inaccurate. I like mm. the "Don't Shut Me Down" song because I think that's the the higher pace song, and that's more kind of the thing that I I naturally gravitate towards. I'm not so sure about the "I Still Have Faith in You" because it's a very sentimental song, which is absolutely lovely. 
for me, it's a little bit too slow and it's not the kind of thing that I associate ABBA with, even though I know that in the past they have released slower songs. It's just not, it's just not what I go for my, uh, to, to ABBA for, for, for a fill of, if you know what I mean. Well, I mean, I'm happy to confirm that the Left Wingers will be at Labour Karaoke, provided we will make it there. And yep. uh, Labour List Karaoke, and we will be doing some kind of ABBA song. Uh, <laughs> I'm not too sure what it's going to be yet. I think that might be an on-the-night decision. But we, we are actually having a, a quick meeting after this podcast to talk about dance moves. Yeah. Um, just to make sure that we're kind of an outfit coordination, just to make sure <laughs> that we're all, you know, we're all on point and we're all going to be there. If you see us at conference, uh, Left Wingers, come and say hi. Uh, we're all really friendly apart from Ross. Um, so, <laughs> just kidding, just kidding. Uh, we're already friendly. So come say hi and we'll, uh, we'll uh, have a chat with you and maybe try and get you on the podcast if we can. I would like to place an emergency motion in front of the left wingers, which is to replace the red flag with I still have faith in you. By mm-hmm. Do you still have faith in the Labour Party? It's <laughs> <laughs> a big question. Do you? <laughs> I do. I do still right. have faith. That was a joke, Abba fans, because there's a song called I Do, I Do, I Do. So there you go. That's... <laughs> As in, you got to listen for the jokes, guys. Got to listen for the jokes. No, Abba's my morning playlist. I have my morning coffee and then I listen to Abba to wake me up. So I, I wouldn't be adding them to my playlist for the mornings. I think it's a really good song. And I also think it's a, the I Still Have Faith in You is a Labour Party anthem. And I would encourage those who haven't heard the song to sit and listen to the lyrics of the song and to think about whether you've ever had that internal conversation with yourself about the Labour Party, <laughs> where you ask if you still have faith. They talk about like unions and memories and stories. Yeah, and it's they like, do. You're like, mm-hmm, this is written, this is written for the Labour Party, but they, very just relatable. Know, um, they just didn't know. I'm really excited. I think we all said on a group chat post earlier on that we're all going, we're all going to go see Amber together, um, which I think will be, I think it'll be fun. We're all going to go to Yorkshire next year and go see Amber. Yeah, come up to Yorkshire. Even without Abba being here, just yeah, just come visit. <laughs> just like it's the midpoint between London and Scotland is Yorkshire. Yeah, and it's it's a great place to visit. Uh, I will be a tour guide. <laughs> Brandon actually paid by the Yorkshire Tourist Board to come on this podcast. Oh my gosh, if he's I ever... wish. I don't I, know if you've ever said that, guys. But for Yorkshire, <laughs> but it's actually it's actually true. Yeah, that's that's definitely true. You can't even get the real Abba to go to Yorkshire. It's going to be holograms. Yeah, isn't it holograms anyway? It's all holograms. I know, I know. I'm Not unless you know a guy, Ross. Unless you know someone <laughs> who, who can get Abba to Yorkshire. Like. <laughs> Could happen. That's hilarious. Have faith in you. Anyway. See, Tia should do that at conference and be like, now I'd like to finish my speech and introduce Abba. Wouldn't you just... <laughs> I would like, die. What would happen? It would be the best thing. Wouldn't it be the best thing? Just, it would be the best thing. Just think <laughs> about it. Idea. Think about it, Keir. Just introduce Abba. Get them over here. We don't have any money anyway, so it wouldn't matter if we lose a bit more of it. Be fine. Money, like, money, money. Introducing. <laughs> introducing. Have a, that would be. You see, if you could do that, that would turn this ship around. Mm-hmm. Like the Starmer ship would. And then when, when someone would say, what is Starmerism? You'd say, Abba. Abba. <laughs> and, then the, and then you're on the doorstep, you'd be like, okay, well, yeah, no, that's fair enough. We've already like, had so a- will you be voting Labour at the next election? They'll be like, yeah. We've already had a it. Dancing Queen, um, yeah. but I feel like I'd appreciate Keir Starmer dancing out to Dancing Queen more than Theresa May. So I, I, I really love get... it when politicians dance. Did, you, did everyone see that Michael <laughs> Gove thing last month? Oh, yeah. Oh, my that God. Was when he brilliant. was like absolutely off his rock. I don't know what he was. This is really weird, right? 
But I would really like to go on a night out with Michael Gove. I think that would be <laughs> fucking hilarious. <laughs> Not in Aberdeen, though. Like, you couldn't pay me enough to go to Aberdeen. But... Oh. Oh. <laughs> it's far to Aberdeen. Yeah. No, you could get Keir going to doors, just, you know, singing at people. Take a chance on me. That would be really good. Yeah, if you go shimmy into the conference hall to that. That would be really good. I need, you know, you'd convert some people to... Maybe a Nick Clegg-inspired music video. Maybe we need a red car. <laughs> Maybe we need to bring in Carly Rae. Who knows? No, it's never no. that bad that you need to bring her in. The situ- no, the que- <laughs> the answer, Carly Rae, is not is not any question that we want to have in the Labour Party. Mm-hmm. She's not the answer to any of our problems. I think actually, Keir getting in ABBA at conference. Mm-hmm. I think this, like you know, I'd understand logistically it is quite difficult, but I think it's I think it's very doable. Sure. <laughs> What have we got to lose? Why not? I think it'd be dead fun. Yeah, I think so on a more serious note, I think it's worth um, mentioning just because of the huge impact it's had on, I think, the three of our lives and I'm sure the lives of the left wingers, uh, the left wingers community. Uh, so yesterday or uh, on Saturday, was the 20th anniversary of 9-11. And I know that it's something that we all kind of looked at our phones in the morning and saw that that was, you know, that was the case. The reason why we chose to talk about this is because I think, although we were all quite young when it happened, I, I can't help but feel that it was a turning point in US and then, of course, world history. And I think that it's really, it's such something to note, but I think it's also, you know, when looking at, what's going on in the Middle East at the minute, I think the events of 9-11 and the tragedy that it was, I think definitely leads into it and plays plays a role. I've seen a lot of people, you know, saying, you know, they know where they still remember it happening and, and where they were um, when the towers came down. Do you two remember where you were? Or, Brandon, were you born? I was just born. I was six months old, but I've been told that I was at my grandma's and I was on my mum's lap and they were watching telly and it, it came on as breaking news and... Yeah, it was a it was a shocking experience. Obviously, me at six months old did not realise the gravity of the situation. But you know, in time, I've come to realise just how significant that that the events of that day were. What about you, Kathleen? Where were you? So I was old enough to be in primary school. So that's that's one of the things that I remember. And I remember something had happened, but we couldn't. They obviously hadn't told us, obviously, and we were trying to figure out what it was. But I, but I, it's it's kind of it's one of those. I think it's just one of those like world event moments. And I think, you know, I think we have to talk about it just just for the sake of like remembering those lives. And it just completely changed. You know, I'm a Londoner and there's no doubt about it that, you know, terrorism is on, you know, it's on my mind when I'm out and about. And it's always something that could happen at any time. And I think maybe 30 or 40 years ago, that just wasn't really the case in the way that it is today because of the nature of, of the change of terrorism and I watched a I watched a documentary on the BBC about it as well and I don't know I don't know how much people know about the other two co-hosts know about it but essentially George Bush was in a was in a, a, a an equivalent of a primary school and uh, he was reading out all these words to these young kids so that they could learn as part of this new reading initiative of getting young kids in America to start reading and uh, this uh, one of his advisors came over and, and said to him another plane has hit the Twin Towers America is under attack and you can and all the journalists at the time were recording him so you can actually they still have the footage and you can see 
the change in his face. He was interviewed about it on the documentary. And someone said, you know, how did you feel? Like, how can you describe your process, your situation, how you felt when you heard that news? And he said, which I thought was quite interesting, he said something along the lines of, it was at that moment that I became a wartime president. And he said, and he and he said, and he, he thought when he took office a couple of months earlier that he was going to be a peacetime president. And he said that is the look of somebody who became a war, who very much on live television in real time became a wartime president. And I think that 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 mindset is just, I think it's so unbelievably interesting. I don't know how you react to news like that, where it's something so different to what you're used to, and it's not. And they said they said in the documentary it wasn't something that was bought up that morning where they thought, oh, well, something could happen today. And they were on tender hooks waiting for the whole day. And they said, actually, they had no idea it was coming. It came completely out of the blue. Yeah, and obviously a lot of people yeah. on the day were receiving quite horrible news about relatives as well. And I think it's kind of a reminder that day to day things can happen and the whole world can change without expectation. That is just a, a fact of life. But it, yeah, it's sad that so many people lost relatives and people that they knew and friends. And that's kind of my takeaway from the whole thing. I spent all of yesterday watching uh, documentaries by, it was on the Nat Geo channel and it was going through all the personal stories, um, which was quite um pressing watch, but also quite eye-opening because there were a lot of kind of little stories of heroism throughout the day, 9-11, that I don't think gets enough coverage and enough looking at because a lot of people did a lot of amazing things on that day um, to help people who were in need. Yeah, I mean, I also thought yesterday is one of those things I just I went for a walk and I had to think. And one of the things I thought about was New York is the comeback city of the world. Like so many things have happened in New York. Like whether you look at the the, the like adverse effect of the pandemic where people left en masse to New York. I remember I remember during the pandemic, there was news items being like people have left New York en masse. Will New York ever come back? Will they ever come back if this pandemic keeps going? And then I think about like terrorist attacks and like so many things that have happened in that have happened in New York and I genuinely the flood the floods and the hurricanes that had gone through in the past like that we don't really have in the UK we don't really have it in London for sure we don't really have adverse weather and I just think like it's a global it's a global city that has an exceptionally resilient population who are just able to pretty much adapt and survive to a lot of other things and I think there are so few cities or places where there are millions of people packed densely into one place where they have that. And I think that's, I think it's really, I, I, I was just thinking about this and I was like, that's really interesting. Just kind of having that, that link to 7-7. I think it's one of those fascinating things. Like when you have an event like that in, your, in, in so many people's lives that affects a city or a nation, you know, it takes a lot of uh, fortitude to get back up the next morning, which I think is, is absolutely fascinating to the resilience of the human spirit. Mm-hmm. And there's no doubt, you know, we, we spoke, I think we've spoken a bit about this podcast about foreign affairs in Afghanistan. There's no doubt about it that it changed the Americans' view of the Middle East. It changed, you know, the, the America's role in the world. It changed how America sees itself. For sure, it was like, a, I, think it was a, I think it's safe to say it's a defining moment in American history. And I think it will be for the rest of time. Yeah, it's, it's interesting to think about what would have happened differently had 9-11 not happened like how different the world could be today like the whole news story about Afghanistan might not be happening right now had those towers not come down 20 years ago they, they sort of did a thing you know just moving on to the next topic we were going to talk about tennis last night and it was quite emotional to watch 
because it was the US Open and because of what happened 20 years ago yesterday. Um, they had a sort of tribute to 9-11 before the, the tennis kicked off and then both athletes sort of said a bit after the match. Did, did you watch that? Did you find it emotional? Or? I thought it was... I thought it was. I did watch parts of the match. I thought it was really good. I also think, you know, going into a obscure tennis uh, point here as a tennis fan, I think how fantastic Serena and Venus Williams are, and they are phenomenal athletes. Like, make no mistake about it, they are both phenomenal athletes and phenomenal people who have achieved excellence in their field. But when you have two people like that who dominate world tennis for decades, there is always like hesitancy around well if you just have two people winning or one or two people winning all the time or you know 50% of the tournaments they win or 40% of the tournaments they win and then there isn't really a competitor like a main competitor there isn't somebody who can challenge them and the only challenge they have really is themselves I think there's always a hesitancy and a worry that maybe there won't be new people in the sport coming in to challenge them and I think last night proved just from a tennis standpoint there most definitely is. There are those two two young women who are fantastic. I quite liked, uh, I think, Emma, the, the British um, tennis player. Somebody retweeted one of her tweets, which was like that she was really worried about taking her A-levels. I thought that was quite strong. I was like, that's good. Um, and that made me laugh a lot because it just you, you see them as athletes and then you forget also that they are just also young women. It made me feel definitely that I haven't done a lot of my life, that's for sure. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I don't have any Grand Slams. Not even one. I'm, you know, at least. Still time. Well, yeah, maybe, but, you know, and just a phenomenal athlete. And I think really strong advocate of mental health. I really liked when she pulled out of, uh, when she pulled out of Wimbledon, I thought that was, for her, I was like, yeah, it's a really, it's a really good idea. And you shouldn't, especially with athletes, the ones that compete often, there's definitely, I think, a new thing in our generation where people, pick and decide what they want to do with their career it doesn't necessarily oh well everyone's gone to all the all the grand slams so you have to go as well and I think maybe her taking time out this year during Wimbledon during that July process has set her up really nicely for what has been a good September and I think strategically that might have been that might have been really really smart of her to do and we've only kind of realized that now uh, and I'd be fascinated to see a lot of other uh, British athletes Marcus Rashford for example tweeting in support of her I, I worried that people were putting too much pressure on her because it is a lot of pressure once you get next to 24-7 coverage of the, the event because there's a bit of a run-up to the, the actual US Open. There was about three days. That's what everybody was talking about on Twitter. That's what everybody was talking about on the news. And I can't imagine being in that position and having that much pressure on me to perform well on a single day. I'm just glad that she pulled it out of the bag. I mean, I feel I feel sorry for the other athlete as well because she was obviously a young girl. This was this is the most success that she's had in her career so far. But yeah, over the moon for for Emma. I don't think that's the case. I think in in elite sport, pressure is part of it. Mm-hmm. It's part of the it's part of the job. It's in the job description. Like you are going to face a huge amount of pressure. It takes a very strong athlete to say that, or a very strong person to say, actually, I don't want to do this now, or I want to do something later, or, you know, to to kind of prioritise mental health. But Mm -hmm. a new era of athletes prioritising mental health, I think, is definitely good for British sport. 100%.
this next topic has just been so emotionally draining just as an individual being somebody who's LGBT in the party um you know I think a lot of a lot of us have lost a lot of faith in the leadership over the past year or so um over this this particular issue transphobia and it not being dealt with at all yeah it's it's a difficult topic to talk about because it does feel like people who are in your community, your friends, their concerns about safety and their concerns about their place in the party are not being listened to. They're just being completely ignored. Um, it was nice to see some reassuring messages from a handful of MPs, and that was it, about transphobia in the party. But yeah, there's, to say there's a lot more to be done would be understating the issue. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's something which all four of the leadership candidates all made pledges on and pledged to root it out and have a no-tolerance approach. And we've not seen that, you know, even last week we had, you know, it's sort of breaking that Jess Barnard was being investigated for tweets, you know, directed at transphobes. Like, mm-hmm. that's the exact opposite of what we were told the leadership was going to do. It's just so draining to see good people leave the party over it. Because mm-hmm. they don't, they, they shouldn't be made to feel like that. And, you know, I, I can't understand what the party's trying to do here. And I know that you, you said that the leadership um, committed to tackling transphobia. I think Keir was the, the only candidate in the leadership election that didn't sign the trans pledges. He has since then said that we're a party um, who supports trans people, but kind of those words are very, very hollow when you consider what's actually happening on the ground and what our trans activists are facing. We've got an MP who, in my opinion, has gone rogue. Rosie Duffield's just gone completely rogue. And I can't see how the leadership or other MPs even are challenging her behaviour, to be honest. You know, this isn't about censorship. We've we've long passed the, the point of she's got an opinion. It's now to the point where it's almost an obsession with trans people and discriminating against them. And she put out a very long tweet thread, which was interesting because we'd had some positive news actually about the Labour Party. Uh, we'd, we'd had a decent poll where we were actually leading. And then the day after, Rosie Duffield puts out this thread, which just it kills the optimism that I think a lot of people were feeling the day before about the party. And I just, I don't know how the leadership can sit and let this happen because I'm not sure why there's a blind spot on this issue. Well, it's not a blind spot. It's a it's a blind black hole, in my opinion. Well, look, we'll wrap it up there. We've touched on quite a range of different topics. We will be at conference. We've got a couple of more episodes coming out before then. We're finalising some of the plans that we have for conference. If you've got any ideas, anything you want us to cover, um, maybe some people you'd like us to speak with, or if you yourself have some ideas you'd like to share it as while you're in Brighton, we'd absolutely love to hear them. We will release um, some of our plans and let you know what's happening over the next couple of weeks. So stay tuned. If you'd like to get in touch, you can do so on Twitter and Instagram. And don't forget to tell your friends. Keep whinging and we'll see you soon.